0: where you can find additional information and resources, as well as the episodes for this podcast. There is also a link on the website to the Facebook page for All Things Plantagenet. Okay, so now on to the show. Chapter 5 of England and the Hundred Years' War by Charles William Chadwick Oman. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. From the Peace of Bretigny, to the renewal of the French War, England, under Edward III, the spanish war thirteen sixty 1360 to thirteen sixty nine the peace of Bretigny forms the high-water mark of King Edward's prosperity. He had still seventeen years to reign, but they were to be a period of growing troubles and gradual decline, corresponding to the decay of the king's own vigor and health in thirteen sixty Edward had reached the age of forty eight, but he was already beginning to show signs of the wear and tear of his busy life. Men grew old ere their time in those hard days. He was now the father of a very large family. He had eleven children, of whom five sons and three daughters survived. One of his main desires was to strengthen the crown by marrying his sons to the heiresses of the great baronial families so as to concentrate as much of the feudal strength of England as he could in the hands of the royal family. His eldest son and heir, Edward, Prince of Wales, had reached the age of thirty before he entered into wedlock. He chose as his wife, a lady of his own age, his cousin, Joanna, Countess of Kent, who inherited the estates of her father, Earl Edmund, the victim of Mortimer. She was a widow, having previously married Sir John Holland, by whom she had two sons destined to be prominent figures in the next reign. The black prince's marriage seems to have been one of inclination. His wife had been known as the Fair Maid of Kent, and all authorities unite to sing her praises. The matches into which his younger brothers entered seem to have been of their father's making rather than their own several of them were wedded before they were well out of boyhood. Lionel, the second surviving son of the king, was married to Elizabeth de Burgh, the greatest heiress in Ireland, who held in her own right the county of Ulster. After her early death he espoused as his second wife Yolanda Visconti, daughter of the Lord of Milan. John of Gaunt, the next brother, made the most wealthy match of the whole family— when only nineteen, he married Blanche of Lancaster, the heiress of Henry of Lancaster, the victor of Cadzant, and Oberosh. She was in her own right Countess of Lancaster, Derby, Lincoln, and Leicester, and the estates which she brought to her husband were the broadest heritage in England. Edmund of Langley, the fourth surviving son of Edward III, married as his first wife a Spanish princess, as his second his eldest brother's stepdaughter, Joanna Holland. Lastly, Thomas of Woodstock, the youngest of the princes, obtained as his bride Eleanor Bohun, one of the two co-heiresses of the ancient earldom of Hereford. At different times Edward conferred on each of his sons the title of duke, a dignity hitherto unknown in England. The Prince of Wales was made Duke of Cornwall, Lionel Duke of Clarence, John, Duke of Lancaster, Edmund, Duke of York, and Thomas, Duke of Gloucester. Of the three daughters of Edward III who reached adult years, Mary married John V, the Montfort claimant to the Duchy of Brittany. Margaret was wedded to John Hastings, Earl of Pembroke, and Isabella to Ingoram de Cussy, a French baron who served her father as a great captain of mercenaries, he was created Earl of Bedford. During Edward's own lifetime, the concentration of so many of the richest fiefs in the hands of his sons undoubtedly strengthened the crown and enfeebled the baronage to a corresponding extent. But he does not seem to have reflected that he was leaving an unenviable future to his successor, destined to have to deal with uncles and cousins who were not only very powerful territorial nobles but also princes of the blood with possible claims on the crown. In endowing his younger sons with such enormous power, he was contributing his part toward making the wars of the roses possible. It was the excessive strength of the House of Lancaster which proved the ruin of Richard II, and in the later generation it was the overgreatness of the heir of the United Lines of York, Clarence, and Mortimer which brought down the House of Lancaster to its bloody end. Edward does not seem in the least to have foreseen that though his own sons would obey and support him, the patriarch of their race, yet his grandsons would have no such feelings of loyalty to his eldest son's heir. Meanwhile, these dangers were still in the far future, and Edward seemed in 1360 the most successful sovereign of his age. His fame as a soldier was spread all over Europe, and the English, who before his time enjoyed no special military repute, became the models of all Western Christendom. The soldiers trained in his wars, Sir John Chandos, Knowles, Manny, Thomas, and William Felton, and the Gasconjon de Grailly, the Captal de Bouche, were reckoned the best knights of their day. Sir John Hawkwood, who had risen from the ranks to become a captain of adventurers, passed on into Italy with his band and carried the balance of power in the peninsula with him as he served one state or another with the famous White Company. This ascendancy of the English in the field implied the predominance of infantry as the chief power in war, to the detriment of the feudal chivalry which had ruled Europe for the last five centuries. In the new system whose first victories had been seen at Duplin and Hallidon Hill, the knights descended from their steeds and formed a solid center of resistance, while the yeomen with their deadly archery took the more active share in the repulse of the hostile attack. Edward III must have the credit of applying this order of battle, which had originally been devised against the Scottish spearmen, to the discomfiture of the French feudal horse. The effect of Crecy and Poitiers was so great that the art of war in Western Europe was wholly revolutionized, and the French, Germans, and Italians took to dismounting and fighting on foot like the English. This loss of military ascendancy by the noblesse was still further developed by another military change of the 14th century. Firearms, whose feeble beginnings go back to the first decade of Edward's reign, were slowly improving and coming into more general use all through the succeeding generation. Though their size was still small and their discharge slow, they proved almost as deadly to the feudal castle as the yeoman's arrow had been to the feudal horsemen. It began to be possible to breach by the use of cannon strongholds which had hitherto been reckoned impregnable. This gave the king the only person in the realm who possessed a competent train of artillery and advantage in dealing with unruly barons such as he had never before enjoyed. Rebels could no longer rely on holding out behind their walls for many months, nor count starvation the only form of attack that they need dread. But the power of cannon to break up feudalism was only just beginning to be realized in the later days of Edward III. It was not fully developed till the 15th century. Edward III did almost as much to advance the growth of English trade and commerce as to increase English military prestige. But his work in this province was not wholly intentional. When encouraging close commercial intercourse with Flanders, he was thinking mainly of the political advantages of the connection with the Flemings, and also hoped to draw financial profits from the taxes on increased exports and imports. But there can be no doubt that his Netherlandish and German alliances took Englishmen further afield than they had been wont to go before, and had favorable results on the national trade. Its volume increased so rapidly during the reign that Edward, first of all English kings, was able to introduce a gold currency into the realm. Before his time, the silver penny had been the largest monetary unit, but he succeeded in issuing with general approval a large gold coin called the Rose Noble, one of which exchanged for eighty pence. This broad, handsome piece secured such general acceptance that it circulated freely in the Netherlands and western Germany, and many of the lords and towns of the Low Countries took to striking money exactly imitating the noble in type and size. This extension of the English currency is closely connected with the fact that from the time of Edward III onward, the English were beginning to send their own merchants abroad, and no longer were content to receive all continental goods at the home ports from foreign ships down to the fourteenth century, the greater part of the seaborne merchandise which England consumed was brought her by the Italians or the traders of the Hanseatic League. Edward very properly encouraged his subjects to sail abroad themselves, so as to get rid of the middleman, and the charges which he exacted for transporting commodities to England. To compete with the powerful foreign trading societies, the native merchants were bound together in the company of the staple, whose institution we have already had occasion to notice. Though monopolies are generally harmful, yet in this case it was almost necessary to secure strength by combination, as the individual trader would have been helpless if he tried to oppose himself to the interests of the corporations of aliens whose markets he was invading. By the end of the century the limits of English seafaring trade were Lisbon and Hamburg. Into the Mediterranean it did not yet penetrate, and the Baltic was almost entirely in the hands of the zealous Hanseatic League. But Chaucer's typical shipman, as it will be remembered, knew all havens from Gothland to the Cape of Finisterre, that is, from northwestern Spain to the coast of Sweden. Manufactures were developing no less than trade. King Edward never did a wiser deed than when he invited the Flemish weavers to settle in Norwich, and make up on the spot the fine English wool which used formerly to be taken over to the Netherlands in order to be woven into cloth. In the true protectionist spirit, a law of 1337 prohibited the wearing of any but English cloth by all persons save the royal family. Weaving was not the only craft which took a new start in the 14th century from the introduction of foreign teachers, Metal work was much improved, and the use of glass in domestic architecture grew much more common. The influence of the Black Death on trade and prices deserves notice. It not only raised the wages of the agricultural classes, in despite of the statute of laborers, but increased the selling value of all manufactured goods. While corn and other natural products of the soil remained at their old level of price, and while sheep and oxen rose only slightly in value, all the things produced by skilled manual labor cost from forty to sixty percent more than they did before the great plague. This came, of course, from the fact that the artisans had been seriously reduced in numbers so that the survivors were able to demand much higher prices for their handiwork. Since the cost of food remained the same as it had been before— The laboring classes were able to buy it of better quality and in greater quantity than of old, and their standard of comfort appreciably went up. The merchant profited as much or more from the enhanced selling value of his wares as he lost through having to pay higher wages to the artisans who manufactured them. On the other hand, the capitalist landowner was in a worse position than in the days before the Black Death since his farm produce cost more in the item of labor, and yet sold for much the same money that it had in the first half of the century. Hence two tendencies had their rise. The landowner, who had been wont to cultivate a large part of his estate himself as a home farm, under a bailiff, in demesne as the term then was, either abandoned the practice and let the demesne land At a rent to tenant farmers, or tried to turn his arable fields into pasture, for a greater profit was to be had from rearing sheep for their wool, the great staple product of England, than by growing any sort of corn. These changes, however, were only beginning to make themselves felt in King Edward's time. It takes many years to turn a simple race of conservative habits into new methods of life and husbandry. The actual loss of population by the Black Death took many generations to repair. It seems to have been felt far more in some districts than in others. The southern and eastern counties suffered more in proportion than the western, and probably lost in consequence somewhat of the enormous superiority in wealth and importance which they had hitherto possessed. They still remained, however, the preponderant part of the realm." Nine years were destined to elapse between the conclusion of the Treaty of Bratigny and the renewal of the war with France. They were on the whole a time of peace and prosperity for England, and as is generally the case during such periods there is little of importance to record in the domestic annals during their course. The intermittent quarrel with the papacy, which had been going on for many years, caused the renewal of the Statute of Provisors, and the confirmation of a statute of primunire, so-called, because by it persons who took appeals to the Pope at Avignon were warned beforehand, primuniti, that they made themselves liable to be brought before the King's courts for showing contempt of his exclusive right of jurisdiction in England, 1365. The writs against such offenders began with the words, primunire facias, and hence came the name of the statute. Some curious legislation against the wearing of clothing too good for their condition by the lower and middle classes bears witness to their growth and prosperity since the Black Death. Like all sumptuary laws, it had no effect and had soon to be abandoned. It is perhaps worth noting also that in 1362 English was made the official language of the law courts where Norman French had hitherto prevailed. The foreign affairs of the realm— Are of more importance, and from the first made it evident that the Treaty of Bretigny was to be a truce and not a permanent pacification. Its terms were never fully carried out. King John failed to raise his enormous ransom, and when he found that it could not be collected, loyally returned to England and surrendered his person, since he had failed to keep his promise. He died at the Palace of the Savoy in the Strand on April 8, 1364. When he had passed away, his son Charles V, a very crafty and unscrupulous prince, refused to listen to any complaints as to the non-observance of the treaty. But he was as yet too busy in pacifying his own realm to stir against the English. He was not even firmly set upon the throne till the claims of his turbulent cousin, Charles the Bad of Navarre, were crushed by the defeat of Cocherel and disposed of by a treaty signed in May 1365. The Breton War of Succession, which had been raging ever since 1341, at last reached its termination in 1364. The younger John of Montfort, the ally of the English, at last succeeded in winning complete possession of his duchy by slaying his rival, Charles of Blois, at the Battle of Oray, a fight gained by the valour and tactical skill of Sir John Chandos and the other English knights who served under his banner, September 29, 1364. But another war in which England was interested was to lead to less happy results. It was the work of Edward the Black Prince, who had been ruling in Aquitaine almost as an independent prince since his father handed it over to him and gave him the ducal title in 1362. To his court at Bordeaux, there came as a suppliant an exiled Spanish prince, Pedro, king of Castile, whom his subjects surnamed the Cruel. He was a stern and high-handed prince whose harsh and wicked rule he had murdered his wife and one of his half-brothers among countless other victims, had driven the Castilians into revolt. The insurrection had been headed by his bastard brother, Henry, count of Trastamara, who had called into his aid, A great host of French mercenaries led by Bertrand de Guiclin, a famous Breton captain of adventurers. Henry, with the help of these allies, easily expelled Pedro from his realm and had himself crowned as king, 1366. The exile urged on the black prince that his situation in Aquitaine would be perilous if he let the neighboring Spanish lands pass under the control of a dependent of the French he promised to repay all the expenses of the war if Edward would restore him to his throne, and to bind himself the closer to the English offered to leave his two daughters, Constance and Isabel, in the Black Prince's hands as hostages. After some hesitation, Edward resolved to give the king his aid. The political advantages of the move influenced him much, but he was moved even more by a chivalrous impulse. He hated the idea of turning away a suppliant, and loving war for its own sake, he was burning to add new laurels to those of Poitiers and espagnol sur mer Accordingly, he accepted Pedro's offer, and the nobles of Aquitaine were bidden to prepare for a Spanish war in the next spring. John of Gaunt brought over a small contingent from England, but the bulk of the army of invasion was made up of the Gascon noblesse, and the veteran mercenaries who flocked in from all quarters to join the prince's banner. So great was his warlike fame in Europe that more adventurers came to proffer him their aid than he could possibly pay or feed. He had to send away thousands of them, after having picked out the best of the men-at-arms to serve him. Thus his army was composed of none but the choice troops, and far exceeded in military value the Spanish feudal levies against which it was to be pitted." Edward crossed the Pyrenees by the Pass of Ronceval, famous in history and in song for the defeat of the Emperor Charles the Great in 778, and for the death of Count Roland, the hero of the oldest legend of chivalry. Charles the Bad gave him a free passage through Navarre, and he did not see the enemy till he reached the hills above Vitoria, where Wellington was to win the crowning victory of the Peninsular War four and a half centuries later. Henry of Trastamara and his French allies had raised a great host, which blocked the passes over the hills of Alava, but the prince outgeneraled them, slipped round their flank, and crossed the Ebro, entering Old Castile. The Spaniards hurried back to place themselves between Edward's host and Burgos, the capital of the realm. The shock between the two armies took place in a broad level plain, between the towns of Naherá. And Navarrete. The result was never for a moment doubtful. Though the Castilians were somewhat superior in numbers, they were mostly raw troops. Moreover, they were accustomed to the skirmishing tactics of the Moors, not to facing the embattled line of dismounted men at arms flanked by archery. The great masses of light horsemen armed with buckler and javelin, which formed the most numerous part of Don Henry's host, broke and fled away in utmost rout a few minutes after they came under the deadly shower of arrows. The French auxiliaries, who had sent away their horses and fought on foot as at Poitiers, were surrounded and slain or captured to the last man. The bastard, who had tried in vain to rally his scattered horsemen, fled away in haste and escaped into France, April 3, 1367. Thus Don Pedro recovered his kingdom at a single blow. He celebrated the victory by beheading such of the prisoners as fell into his hands, to the utter disgust of his chivalrous ally. Edward marched with him as far as Burgos, and replaced him in his palace, but dissensions at once began between them. Pedro could not or would not repay the vast sums which the prince had spent in raising and paying his army. The English hosts were kept cantoned round Burgos all through the summer, Suffering severely from the unaccustomed heat and from a lack of supplies. Sickness broke out among them, and Edward himself was prostrated by an attack of fever. Meanwhile, the Castilian king had gone away to Andalusia and sent evasive letters instead of remittances of money. At last, the prince, in high disgust, marched back unpaid to Aquitaine, leaving his faithless ally to shift for himself. By displaying again his old cruelty and recklessness, Pedro soon provoked a second rebellion of his subjects. Henry of Trastamara returned, defeated him in battle, and finally took him prisoner. The bastard then settled the succession question by brutally murdering his brother with his own hands, March 1369. Thus the only result of the victory of Navarrete was that an implacable enemy of England was now firmly set upon the Castilian throne, while the Duchy of Aquitaine was overwhelmed with the enormous debt incurred in restoring Don Pedro. The prince, honestly desiring to pay what he owed, sold his silver plate, surrendered to his followers the ransoms of his French and Castilian prisoners, and tried to make up the balance by raising money from his subjects. But his proposal to impose on every house in Aquitaine a hearth tax of one franc provoked bitter opposition. The Poitevin and other newly annexed vassals of the duchy were thoroughly discontented and disloyal, and took the first opportunity of withstanding their master. The estates of Aquitaine refused to vote the impost, and when Edward persevered in his plan, a body of barons headed by the lords of Albret and Armagnac announced their intention of appealing to the king at Paris. This was utterly contrary to the terms of the Treaty of Paratigny, by which Aquitaine had been freed forever from all feudal dependence on the French crown. The Gascon nobles, therefore, had no right to call in Charles V, but legality counted for little, and the one point of importance was to discover whether the king would dare to involve himself in a new English war, after the unhappy experiences of his father and grandfather. Charles V resolved to take the risk. He had got his realm into something like order during the five years which had elapsed since he had crushed the King of Navarre, and he was well acquainted with the fact that more than half of Edward's subjects in Aquitaine were ready to rebel and join him. Accordingly, he first sent a summons to the Black Prince to appear at Paris and answer before his suzerain for wrongs done to the barons of the south, and when this preposterous order was ignored, commenced hostilities. It is said that as a mark of contempt he sent the final declaration of war, not by a herald, as was the custom, but by the hands of his master cook. April 29, 1369. End of chapter 5.